0: Lesson it comes to us this morning from the Good News according to St. John, the 15th chapter. This is Jesus speaking uh, the last few words that he spoke to his disciples in the upper room on the night that he was betrayed and uh, the night before his crucifixion. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the gospel of our Lord. So, some of you may or may not know that, in addition to being one of the pastors of this church, I founded and lead a nonprofit. Uh, called Tao, and the, one of the main things we do is take people, modern people like us, stressed out, anxious people, uh, out into the wilderness and into nature uh, to spend time of rest and renewal, but also to observe nature and to practice monastic traditions, which people have always done. They go out to the woods, they go out to the deserts, they go out to the mountains, uh, and they spend time with the Lord and they learn from nature and from pr- rhythms of prayer and the scriptures uh, how to live more balanced lives. And we sort of teach people in this wilderness settings how to bring habits of retreat and habits uh, of the contemplative tradition and other ways of being deeper back into the world so i was hired uh, for just a few days last may to go as part of tao out uh, to uh, the redwood forest in northern california uh, near the ocean which is really lovely and beautiful how many of you've been to the redwood forest seen some of the redwoods or the sequoias uh, it's, it's quite amazing. We were there uh, trying to live love on uh, a handful of young pastors from Northern California. And I was able to walk with my friend that does this with me. We were looking up at this canopy of ancient trees and you just can't believe how high they go and how old they are and the sort of view that happens uh, when they come together, this sort of vista that takes your gaze upward. And you can actually believe what Jesus says when he said that if you aren't praising and worshiping, don't worry about it because the trees of the field are always clapping their hands. I mean, it is amazing. These trees can be 3,000 to 4,000 years old sitting there watching, praising God and growing in strength and in silence. And the ancient root system that goes underneath and is interconnected underneath all of this place is amazing, and you couldn't even possibly tear it apart with lots, lots and lots of machines and, and lots and lots of time. 3,000 or 4,000 years, these trees have been sitting there in strength and silence, bearing witness before we thought up modern democracy, before the founding of America, before all of ancient medieval history that you may have studied, before the Roman Empire, before Jesus the Christ himself, before the exodus in the Old Testament. That's how long these trees have been sitting there bearing witness and strength and in silence. And so we meditate upon these trees and I contemplate them and think some of the thoughts I just shared with you and just try to take in the presence and what, what uh, metaphor or uh, not even, what parable I could take in and learn from them, uh, what God is trying to teach me as we reflect on this creation of his. And then we go back and find ourselves somewhat fruitlessly, it felt like, trying to lead a cohort of anxious, young, earnest pastors. Some of you guys remember Brian and Jameson when we were younger? Oh, man, you know, all so idealistic, full of plans. We're going to plant so many churches so quickly, so everywhere. We're going to help change the city. We're going to do all this stuff. And also, I've got lots of kids. And also, I'm raising money, and I don't know how to do it. And also, I can't afford the city. And people walk away, and pandemics happen, and it's a mess. And these young, anxious young pastors were there, just frenetic, frantic, busy. Their minds harried and hurried, and they were anxious. And even there in the forest, they kind of still wanted to just find time to talk to each other about strategies of fixing their churches and how to respond to stuff. They're skimming over the surface of their life, the busyness. What do we have to get done today, this semester, in our presbytery, in our church, in our churches, in our neighborhoods? And we've been talking for the last few weeks. This is a sermon series about what's been called the great de-churching, right? If you've been here, you've heard us say it, but it's worth repeating that in the last 25 years, uh, something like 14 to 15 percent, I'm going to forget my, uh, I didn't write them down, so forget my exact statistics, but uh, uh, 15% of American Christians have stopped going to church, period. Uh, it's the greatest uh, trend in uh, American religious shift in American religious history. More than anyone came into the church through the first, second great awakenings and all of Billy Graham's crusades, more than that amount of people have left the church. And so we've been asking, why is this? How can our church and other churches repent and learn from what God is doing in the world around us so that we are more faithful and therefore more compelling to the people around us? We're asking why church and why now? And this morning, we're talking about the fact that the church has an opportunity to be a, a people of depth in a distracted world. A world where you're constantly and you know, this is what it's like to live in my mind uh, in its natural default state, which is, can be called monkey mind or squirrel brain or just busy energy. Anybody relate? You know, um, it's just always moving, always going always quickly from one thing to another the next fear the next thing to imagine might happen to us and that's how most of us live our lives and we're saying that we have an opportunity now to provide depth in a distracted world and this is particularly hard because the church itself seems to be quite distracted it seems to be now of course usually sanctified language baptizing personal agendas and and cultural agendas and culture war, and giving it nice Christian uh, platitudes and uh, destinations in Christian terms. But really, American Christianity has been completely politicized. It is reacting, as everyone else is, to the news and to electoral politics in the United States of America, or to the news cycle in the world that is fed to you? Pastor Rich Velotis, who pastors a very uh, lovely and multi-ethnic and large church in Queens, uh, we're reading his book, uh, one of his books, as the elders, pastors, and trustees of this church. Uh, If we finish and we think it's worthwhile, we'll recommend it to you, but it's been worthwhile so far. Rich Velotis writes this in the last chapter that we read together. He said, it's not a stretch to say that we live in the most overly communicated age in history. There's a lot of chatter in our world. Every second, on average, around 10,000 tweets are tweeted on Twitter. That was fun to say, which amounts to 6,000, 60,000 tweets a minute, more than 900 million tweets per day, and almost 300 billion tweets per year. That's a lot of talking and tweeting, he says. The problem with this, he says, is that often our lives are not saturated. The silence which means our speaking often comes from a place not rooted in god instead of our words carrying power to expose the powers announce the kingdom of god and gently encourage those bruised by life they too often resemble the words of the fallen world system when I was in seminary, it was very popular for the professors to teach us when they were teaching us how to preach. Uh, this quote from Karl Barth, great 20th century Swiss theologian, considered perhaps the greatest mind of the 20th century in theology. He liked to say, and this is one of the only sentences he's ever written that I can actually understand, <laughs> he said, You should always preach with your Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Now, I completely believed that and understand what he means and do still wrestle with that almost every week that the gospel can't just be some timeless thing up there that never touches down to the real world that we live in to our pain points to our wars to our frustrations to our uh, pandemics to the things that we struggle with it needs to be attached to the human condition it needs to incarnate as we talked about two two weeks ago not just to be an ideology but to be an incarnated message The problem with this is that he wrote this what I don't know 100 years ago (laughs) maybe you'd get the news if you're lucky once a week you hear it from people it moves slowly it was kind of boiled down to just the big stuff now as you're sitting here no doubt feeling notifications buzz in your pocket to find out what happened and it's gonna all be let me let me go ahead and guess bad news right the next thing the next thing you're supposed to get all upset about and point a finger at someone about and just worry about, and they're going to do that, and we talked about it two weeks ago, listen to the sermon, Incarnation Ideological World, is because we have built, through this capitalistic media system, we have built the, the media industrial complex, which is built and designed as you're walking down, finally enjoying your day, for someone to make a noise over here and dog whistle, whatever word you don't like, whether it's on the left or the right, and you walk over there like, yeah, what... I want to hear about that. And then they go over there and they mug you and take your money. That's what, that's what the news system is and the social media companies primarily. To try to distract you from what you're doing so that you're constantly on the surface of things and getting irate, going about skin deep on any issue, okay? I'll just go ahead and say it. I have a, a lot of deep feelings about what's happening in the Middle East right now. I've read a lot about it. I've studied about it. I've hesitated to make it the center of a sermon because what I am supposed to suddenly have the wisdom of thousands of generations to tell you specifically how you're supposed to think about everything other than the loss of human life, which is always a tragedy. We're suddenly supposed to be deep on every subject, (laughs) you know, as wide as the earth. It's not going to happen. And so we find ourselves staying on the surface level of anxiety, just doing and doing and doing and reacting and doing. And we're distracted from what, you might ask? From our roots. From our depths. From, as this passage says, that we read earlier from the Gospels, Jesus says himself, from the true source of our vitality. And the vitality of all things, the true source of all life, is buried under the surface. I've mentioned this once before, but we started working on a garden in our Brooklyn backyard. We kind of had let let go for a long time because it's just a long story. It's a mess all around us, and it wasn't really worth the time, and we were too busy with little kids. But to begin to work on a garden, to till things up, you have to do, you have to do the hard work, especially in a Brooklyn backyard. If you are... Have the fortune to have when you realize there's lots of stuff you have to dig up, dig deep, remove all the things on the surface, and even below the surface, the stuff that has accumulated on the surface of things over and over again through neglect and through pollution. And we too live in a time and place in which there are many broken and buried things in our cultural yard, there's much rubble and wreckage in our lives, and there's very little true flourishing, it seems, on the surface. Already in our sermon series, we've Consider some of these things. Instead of living in a time characterized by abundant harvest shared by all people and things, instead we are marked by division, which is a world of walls, disintegration, a world without proper worship, despair, a world without a witness or the ability to see the kingdom of God in the world, a world not characterized by incarnation and embodied fleshiness with one another, but instead by ideology and identity politics. And again this week, we like to stay there, doing things on the surface, trying to fix things on the surface rather than going beneath the surface where we are called to be. To be. To be a being more than just a human doing. To go deeper. And questions start to get us there. Time. Silence. Paying attention. Paying attention again. Slowing down. Paying attention. To find the ancient root system. Root system. That can create a flourishing forest. And I'll tell you what it is because we're about to read some texts. So just take my word for it. Our deepest purpose. Our deepest reason for being beneath the surface Jesus tells us is really in short connection it's an easy word connection nothing extremely weird or mystical yet about that right just connection that beneath the surface what you your life is actually made for to do to be is connected to God and his life The source of all life, the life that is Him and that comes from Him. We are to abide in Him and to be rooted in Him and to keep abiding in Him and to stay rooted in Him and to make sure He is where we are drawing life from. He is where we are looking for life from. He is who we are spending our time in and with. And then, a life of connection to others, a life of deep connection, not surfacey social groups. But deep connection to family, friends, church, neighbors. And yes, a deep connection to the creation, to nature, which has been called by many theologians from all traditions something like God's first revelation, the Bible being his second revelation. His first Bible, his first word. I can find you the scripture text that point us to this many psalms and many other places you can consider jesus himself who actually walked around in the modern phrase practicing biomimicry <laughs> pointing out what the birds and the trees and the stones and the wheat and everything else is doing and what it's like and how we can learn lessons from it to be more like those in the kingdom of god by observing nature The Apostle Paul would put it this way later. He describes why he's a minister. I think of those ministers in the forest. I think of myself any given day, even as I'm trying to put the finishing touches on the sermon early this morning or whatever. The Apostle Paul said, I became a minister because I have a stewardship from God that was given to me. To make the word of God fully known, this mystery that's been hidden, like a treasure in a field, hidden for ages and generations, but now it's been revealed to all of his saints. And here's the mystery. Here's why I've been called to work. Here's what I'm doing as I go to work like a farmer. It's to see Christ inside of you. Christ in, to borrow a phrase from the South, y'all, it's plural. Christ in you. That is your hope for glory. Christ in you. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom. This is going to come up in a second. All wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Stick with these words for a second. I'm going to bring them back around. Wisdom. We teach the word of God to give wisdom so that everyone might become mature in Christ. And this is the reason I toil. I struggle with all of his energy that he works within me. Even see the vital connection there? I'm doing, man, I'm doing hard work, but it's his work. It's him working in me, really. Abiding in the vine. This is the work we're called to do, struggling with all his energy that he works within us to go beneath the surface beneath our surface thoughts and motivations, see what goes on or doesn't go on in the secret places of our hearts and minds to realize that we are all interconnected. And you know this, you know it negatively through living through a pandemic together, that there is no such thing as the rugged, lone Western individual that we've all liked to think in our cultural history. We're actually totally connected. And Jesus says this all the time. His most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard the law. You've heard the surface version. You've heard how it's been watered down to just do this little thing. But make sure you avoid that on this day. And that will, that will make God happy. And he says, no, no, no. You've heard what it was said. Let me tell you. It's actually, and he starts pointing to people beneath the surface, down to their heart. It's not just, oh, don't ever commit adultery. It's like, if you were sitting there lusting after that woman, it's the same thing. You've already done it. You know? It's the heart. It's the root. It's the root. So he starts to point people to the roots of our own lives to get down there. And he says that you will recognize my followers eventually by their fruits. I mean, you're not, you're going to, you want to go for fruit, right? You want to get a fig, you want to get strawberries, you want to get grapes, you want to make wine. Then you're looking for places that bear fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn brushes, figs from thistles? No, every healthy tree bears good fruit because it's in the root. It's abiding in Christ, going beneath the surface, digging down and finding that he's there, spending time with him in his silence and strength, in his life and his power. This is the only thing that will eventually have time to not only root us and to keep us alive, but to help us to begin to flourish and to grow up into a beautiful interconnected ecosystem. Jesus said it this way with just a couple of the verses we read earlier. I am the true vine. It's another organic metaphor, right? You could think of a tree, very large vine making grapes, whatever. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Therefore, abide. And where's that word abide? I could define it for you, but just think about it. It, it. It's evocative. Does it sound like Busyness does it sound like distraction does it sound like only ever and not that these things don't matter they do only living on the news cycle and your own personal news cycle of what you have to do this week and what your fears are and only living there of course you present those to god yes but also jesus says there's something more martha there's this mary move abide in me and i abide in you No branch can bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you. If you want your life to be fruitful for you and for others, abide in me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. You're not the vine. You can't just go tap into something and find flourishing. No, if you want life, you have to abide in me. I'm the vine. You're just a branch. If you abide in me and I in that person, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And this is how my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And when you bear much fruit, you will prove to the world that you are my disciples. When you go deep and abide in Jesus, in his timing and in his way of witness, sometimes in his strength and his silence and his perseverance, as the world fritters its time away until it's over, we can bear witness and bear fruit to the world by our depth, by our abiding, by our dwelling. With Jesus. When you go beneath and you find Jesus there, and you find him beneath the surface of your life, waiting for you, paying attention to you, hidden in the center, God himself longing to live with you and to love you, you realize that you are not alone in this work, as Paul said. Oh, my life isn't just my own work project. I really thought it was. I had to do all the right things and get the right education and the right career and make the right friends and meet the right person, and, and then I would be happy. No, he is at work in you. If you abide in him, You're not working alone. Right there in the roots of the trees, right there underneath the bramble and the thorns, Jesus is dwelling, waiting to replace your fears with himself, to give you his humility and forgiveness of all wrongs and the healing of all relationships in place of your anger, his unmerited praise in place of your ambition for acceptance and applause. His calm and unshakable rule in place of your shoddy and inconsistent control. His compassion and kindness in place of your sadness. His hope filled and dynamic purpose instead of your numbness. And his love in place of your fear. Christ in you, the hope of glory for flourishing. See, in the depths we find Christ. I'm going to bring in one other idea here as we apply it just for a few minutes. You'll be familiar if you've been around, and that's fine. Pastors have themes, and they go through seasons of their ministry in which they find those themes to be more important than in other times. I've found my theme ever since about the start of the pandemic and before it really, really before it, in our political climate and cultural climate. To keep seeing this theme of shalom in the Bible. We spit a whole thing on the pilgrimage of shalom, and so I just want to say this. When you go deep down beneath the surface and you find Christ in us, the hope of glory, at the roots what we find there is that shalom is not just a temporal or a destination in the future at the end of a temporal experience that awaits us, that's distant. But instead, shalom is really just God himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect harmony, three and yet one, one and yet three. This same God who made human beings in his image in a plurality, male and female, together one and yet two to represent him. This creation that he made first full of all of these animals and critters and plants that he tell them to go and look at and to name and to delight in and then to cultivate and to steward and take care of and to make them flourish all over the whole planet together, this beautiful shalom. This was the original intention. This is what God is taking us toward, but you can also experience shalom when you go deep. I'm going to apply it in three ways, the personal, the interpersonal, and the creational. Okay. Personal shalom. I've done this sermon already again when we did worship, if you want to go look at it. Personal, holistic well-being. But here, I want you to think about depth. And the way to get deep is to, I'm going to use this word contemplation the rest of the sermon, to contemplate. And you know what that means. Again, I don't have to define that to you. It's different than just read and scroll, right? Pay attention, contemplate. And part of what we're doing here is contemplating on God with us in our individual Holistic being, our mind, our body, and our soul. C.S. Lewis said it this way the mind controls the belly through the chest. Now he's pointing out there that we are holistic beings. You have to think about your mind and your heart, your gut, your desires, and your will, your chest. I agree with him. I'd say, actually, some years later, that maybe the belly controls the chest through the mind. I'm not sure. Uh, We'll have to argue that one out later on the New Heavens and New Earth. But the point is, is that our thinking, our doing and our being in mind, body, and soul all have to be recalibrated. Our thinking. This is why, yes, every week you'll get lots of scripture in this service. Every week you'll hear a sermon about this. When we get together and have formation groups, you will sit underneath the word. You won't just always dissect it. You will hopefully hear it read and reflect on it. And sometimes we'll do Lectio Divina, which is contemplative. You take it and you look at it like a stone and you say, well, let me think about this passage and let's sit in silence and reflect for a while and see what the spirit brings to the fore of each of this person in this room. Okay, and we talk about it for a minute and we think and we reflect and quiet. And then you turn it over and you think about another facet. You do that for a while and you spend time. But it's also, a lot of you asking us, in your stress and your worry, like, I just need to know more Bible. And you do, okay? Memorize it. Put it in your heart that you might not sin against God, that you know how to live rightly. But I think what we're often thinking is just, I need to know how to think about all of these other topics, right? Or how to apply it to my life in such a way. And I want you to tell you that there's a way to read the Bible that's even deeper. I just gave one example, a meditative, contemplative kind of group reading. There's a way for you to spend a lot of time with certain phrases over and over again to really see how they show up throughout your life in the week. But There's also just a way to read the Bible that is deeper than the way most people read it, even some religious people. I mean, this is a big part of what Jesus was doing. He's saying, you guys, man, all you do, Pharisees and scribes and lawyers, and by the way, this just means bishops and pastors and all the people that like, do this for a living, all you book writers and New York Times novelists in the spirituality section or whatever it may be, He's like, you love to just dissect this thing, but you just miss the forest for the trees. It was always about love God, love neighbor, as you love yourself. It was always, he doesn't need showy sacrifice. He wants mercy and justice, especially for the poor and the outcast. Walking humbly with your God, doing justice, loving mercy. These are what it was always about. He just gets to the root of things. And I'll give you one just for fun, because people are asking about how to read the Bible and stuff. One of the major themes, and why I said, remember, Paul's job was to give us the word to present us mature in Christ. If you just read the Old Testament, it's actually the story of a maturation from an infant to a full-grown human being. There's first the law, the first five books of the. It's all ABCs, one, two, threes. You're in elementary school. Here's how you worship. Here's how you don't worship. You're not going to do idolatry. You're going to do it this way. Here's how you approach me. Here's what bare minimum sacrifice is. Here's why you don't run out into the road. Here's why you build fences on the top of your rooftop. Here's how if your bull gores someone else, you this is the right thing to do. Let me teach you how to live in the world. And many of us need to hear those things. It's especially true of people that live wrecked lives or have grown up outside of any moral or or a Christian tradition, or other kind of religious tradition. Uh, They don't know what they're doing. Maybe they're addicts. And you see, that's why everyone who's a convert is usually pretty, a little bit fundamentalist at first, because they're getting the fundamentals down. A, B, C, one, two, three. I, I need this to make order of my life. And that is good and right. Okay? It's just the first stage. You get to the wisdom literature, poetry, Song of Solomon, all the kings. The first thing that happens is there's no rule for what happens when two women say up, come forward and say, this baby's mine. No, it's not. And he has to use wisdom to figure out the thoughts of the hearts, if you know that story. Wisdom now is poetry. It's like one, in this situation, do this. In this situation, don't do this. And the do this is the same thing. You're like, wait, do or I or don't I? Wisdom. Answer a fool. Don't answer a fool. Next to each other in the Proverbs. Which one is it? You're called to discern with the spirit, abiding in God, knowing who he is more deeply and become more wise in gray areas. Speaking a word of wisdom rather than just reaction of that's wrong, that's right, you're wrong, I'm right. And now you're wise and thoughtful. And then what is the third stage? In short, mysticism. It's the prophets going out into nature to spend time with God saying they don't need the ways of the world anymore. And when they do that, they're suddenly called back into, tear empires down with the word of their mouth for like half a minute. I mean, that's real culture change. When they're all the way deep in God through most of their life, then they're sent back in to just be like, you're up, you're down, boom. God's bringing his kingdom to the world. I'm gonna go back out into the woods now. Oh, there's a widow, widow over here. I'm gonna make sure I take care of her and heal her and raise her children. Now I'm back into the desert praying. Because I need to spend time deeply connecting with God. Paul says, Christ is in you, and I'm toying all that I can so that you go through the word of God, the ABCs, the one, two, threes, that you gain wisdom, that you might be presented mature in Christ. And then Jesus came in the fullness, fullness of time, priest, king, and prophet. Friends, you want depth? It's there. Read the Bible. Study it. Reflect on it. And Rich Velotis put it this way, who I mentioned again earlier. He says, the question then is, what do we need at this time? And he says, I'm just gonna quote for him for a paragraph. My answer is contemplative prayer. We need more silence. We need a life of being with God. Contemplative prayer is not just a surrendering of words and silence before God. It's also the training of the soul for moments when we must surrender our words before others, especially when we are attempted to use our words for harm. If you circle back to the book of Proverbs, there are many themes within this popular book of the Bible. There are many themes within the 31 chapters, but Proverbs has more to say about our words than about anything else it addresses in our lives, more than money, sex, or family. The repeated calls to use our words wisely reminds us how much our words matter in conversation, in our emails, texts, blogs, phone calls, and social media. Much of the tension in our families and offices and dorms and churches and nations is because of undiscerning words, or I might say a lack of depth. And for the sake of time, I'm gonna mostly skip to the end of, I have here interpersonal well-being, I'll just tell you, this applies to the way that we can practice depth and contemplation with one another, that you don't just label someone because you saw what they did on Facebook or something, or you heard this or that, but you're curious, you spend time with them, you prioritize the local over the global, the interpersonal over the cultural, a real human being right before you. Be curious. Try to learn the depths of that person. And then lastly, creational. Creational well-being. Maybe we'll just make this a special sermon down the road of its own. But as I've tried to demonstrate or argue in this sermon, to pay attention to God's first book of Revelation. That the scriptures then as the second come to help us interpret and understand rightly, yes. But to not just discard that then, think that it doesn't matter, but to fall in love, as Adam did when he was finding cool names for everything, like a child. Janine Benyus, who gave us the name biomimicry, says, we are surrounded by geniuses that we can learn from. She writes, this is a summary. Nature runs on sunlight. Nature uses only the energy it needs. Nature fits form to function. Nature recycles everything. Nature rewards cooperation. It banks on diversity. It demands local expertise. It curbs excesses from within. It taps the power of limits. Jesus said, even the stones cry out and witness. So back to my forest. Did you know that trees these large trees, in this ecosystems. When the tall ones, who have been giving nutrients to the smaller ones because they're closer to the sunlight, through the underground root system and all the stuff down there. When one is dying at the end of their lives, they pump all of their resin down into their roots. They let the top of them die early by pushing whatever's left of nutrients into their roots for the community Sounds a little bit like what Jesus said in our passage. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Remember, he's going to the cross the next day. Abide in my love. Abide in the love of the Father. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. That my joy... May get down into the roots and be in you, that you may be full as I am full. And in order to achieve this, I command you love one another in the same way that I love you. And greater love has nobody than this when someone lays down his life for his friends. Christ came to live as one of us, to live a flourishing life, to be interconnected to us and to the world and to God. And he's brought all of his resin to his roots in this night before he died, in order that we might have life and know how to be rooted and deep in him to the deepest depths. Dig deep. Let God build us into a beautiful forest cathedral that all might come and see and rest and eat fruit and be nourished and find that there is so much more underneath the surface of our lives, that there are people who are endeavoring to be people of depth, and of life, and of love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.